Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode. Hey, guess what? Before we get into it, you might have heard, I am drafted to the two Ramagpies as a part of the Carlton Draft. I'm going to be playing a game, dominating, kicking six, and then resetting at quarter time. For the first time in Carlton Draft history, one lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT, Erin Phillips, to play as a wild card. How bloody good's that? If you want to enter this now to get her down to your football club, visit thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com. Welcome back to Dylan Friends, bonus episode edition. This is a best of sport. Gee whiz, going through this list, there's been some incredible guests we've had on this year and um, it was actually quite fun. Sam and I sat down and and looked at all the cool episodes that we'd had and and reflected on it. Um, Even, you know, the BNF episode last week was so cool to sit down and listen to every episode we've had in 2021 and um yeah it's been unreal so really looking forward to these episodes hopefully people um hopefully you all enjoy them and and you even might find some episodes you haven't really listened to yet throughout it all so here they are but before we get into it something massive is happening in the podcasting world spotify have a new rating system you can rate the podcast and you can give it you know stars out of 10 um and i think you can even leave a message so please 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 pretty please if you do love the podcast be a massive help to the show if you can yeah leave a review or rate the show on spotify or if you listen on itunes please do that as well just yeah really helps out with all the algorithms and and getting our show up and going so that would be absolutely huge also as well i hope you had a massive um break good christmas and you're gonna have a really good holiday hopefully you're listening to this on a road trip heading to your holiday destination to hang out with friends and family because we love that that's what it's all about I'm having an awesome break. I've been off the technology, playing as much golf as possible. Um, I'm going to try to go a bit of camping as well. My Sydney trip got cancelled, um, unfortunately, due to COVID. But, yeah, it's really exciting. Got a couple of weddings in early January too. So taking it easy, playing golf, just trying to have a massive re- uh, refresh going into 2022, which has been awesome. All right, so let's get into it. These are the episodes that we're going to be going through. Number 79, Dylan Alcott, uh, dealing with resilience and growing up with a disability. This chat was with our first episode of the year and, yeah, it really did, for lack of a better term, did set the tone for the year. He's just an incredible guy. I mean, he'd won so much you know, awards and I think he went on to win about 15 more that year. So blessed to have him on and uh, to hear his story. Max Gorn came on, um, his incredible story far out, like to see where he'd come from smoking darts on the way to training to now being a premiership captain at the Melbourne um, Footy Club, which I never thought would really happen in my time, was unreal. He spoke about, you know, culture in footy, how much it's changed from the Demons to when he first got there to now. Paddy Cripps, we added him on for his mindset and growth from adversity. You know, he's had a really tough had an incredible career but had a tough sort of upbringing with um you know being captain in a, in a team that hasn't been super successful early on but i think um you know this year shows he's going to be set up for a lot of success with everything he's going to he's a, and he, the way he thinks about it you'll be you'll be really impressed with his mindset if you haven't listened to this already um maddie DeBoer, this episode was it i just love this one like obviously matt would be the first player he didn't want to come on the show because he said you know no one would know him and want to listen to what he had to say but this one was one of the most, you know, listened to episodes. I think it came sixth in the BNF, or I think actually fifth on the BNF this year, which is is huge. Like his mindset is second to none. This bloke will be the AFL CEO one day, worst case. Like he'll probably be bigger than that. He's already running venture capitalist um, firm, you know, athletic ventures, doing venture uh, into all businesses and investing with athletes 
everywhere. Check that one out as well if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, the stories we spoke about was don't fuck with Matt DeBoer when he chased down someone that um, stole his wallet. If you haven't heard that story, please listen to that show. It's towards the end. And one of my favorite analogies he spoke about was a player A, player B analogy where he told a story of two people and, you know, one was underperforming, didn't take the most of their opportunities or and, and you know, blamed everyone else. The other one was someone who did their best. They left no stone unturned. They rocked up early. They did all these things. And, you know, he asked me who which player is who, you know, who is who. And I had no idea where I was going with it. And he goes, well, they're both me. One is who I choose to be and one is who I don't choose to be. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a mind blow. He tells it a lot better than me. Please don't let me put that off, but please listen to that show. Darcy Vessio, um, AFLW superstar. This chat was unreal. Like, I want to do a lot more of these next year. It's just so important to, to hear these messages and, you know, how good Darcy is is for not just AFLW but for football in general with her story and yeah just it's just so fucked to think that only four or five years ago you know women weren't playing AFLW and I think it's you know come to a norm now for me anyway that that's a thing but unfortunately that wasn't always a thing and it's so good to have you know women growing up now being you know having that as an option and and she spoke about you know how hard that was for her when she just knew that it wasn't going to be a thing and um, she even missed out again because she forgot to register for the draft but she's just uh, yeah an incredible incredible lady doing awesome things so make sure you check that one out Chankuth, Giath, CJ's from from the Hawks and and has an incredible story from immigrating to Australia from South Sudan and and the trek that his his family made is just you know really puts life into perspective and yeah he's just a just a super dude doing doing awesome things and the way he told that story just can't thank him enough for opening up and then he also spoke about the impact that Sam Mitchell's had on his career which is you know very fortuitous now being the the senior coach excited to see their relationship blossom Zach Butters one of my favorite players in the AFL love this kid how hard he is and he's even tougher off the field but yeah his vulnerability was awesome like he's come up in so many conversations you know with Hugh Van Kolenberg and the Resilience Project he's had a done a bit of work with him too and Zach you know told his story about family addiction and hardship um, and how they've sort of you know, got through that as a family and, and still deal with, you know, everything today because it's not, you know, one-off thing. It's something that you just, you have to stay on top of. And, you know, he really did that with Port Adelaide too and it was a massive changer of their culture up there. So, yeah, it's crazy going through this list. We've, we we couldn't add everyone in, but there's some awesome stories in here. I hope you enjoy them all. If we've missed out on one, let us know. We'll try and get them up. But, yeah, just can't thank all of these um, guys and girls for coming on the show this year. Literally forever indebted to these guys because I think, like, obviously, you know, it's awesome to have them on the podcast and, and to have a chat with them but I'm just learning so much from them and I feel like every time I get someone like this on it's just like such an incredible opportunity to learn from someone who's been there done that and um, already been through it so I know it's been a massive 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 help for me in, in a tough year but yeah hope you enjoy it so let's get into it you from episode 79 Dylan Alcott I went to primary school and I really loved school I loved playing footy uh, I was more of a stepladder though than a participant because vertical leap, not one of my fortes. But uh, I, you know, I, I didn't really notice about my disability. And then, so I was a pretty happy kid, confident, enjoyed who I was. And then 12, 13, 14, it was like a click of the finger moment mm. where everything changed. I, I got bullied. It started that I couldn't keep up with my friends as much. Uh, they became less patient, which was fair enough too, because when you're 13, you don't, oh, hang on, I got away from my mate in the wheelchair. Like, yeah. Uh, fair enough. And, but it was more the, you know, I got bullied about my disability. Uh, I got called a cripple and a spastic everywhere that I went. And um, there, you know, for me, they're words that actually have a real negative connotation. And I actually fully started believing them. And I mean, people that listen to your podcast, we're in the age bracket where, 
you know, you, you might still use words like that. Like, how many beers did you have on Saturday? Oh, 100%. Madam Aspastic, you're yeah. Aspastic. Or, Dill, you're a retard, you dropped something, whatever. And, um, you know, everywhere I went, the cripples here, the cripples here, and I started believing them wholeheartedly. And, yeah, man, I was not the bubbly guy I am now. I ate – all I ate was Doritos and cheesy nuggets from Red Rooster. I was f- obese, played PlayStation, didn't go to school, hated myself. And – the person that I am now and what I've – the life I live, if you had told me then it was going to happen, I would have told you to get fucked because I had no desire, no passion, but most importantly, no proud proudness in who I was. And it was, yeah, it, you know, it was it was tough for me. What changed, man? Like was there, was there a crucible moment? Was there something that stuck out? Was there many sort of cases that just over time you believed or it, – It's part innate, part learnt, I think, confidence. Yeah. Uh, and – uh, the two things happen. One, the biggest regret I've ever had in my life, besides my horrible fucking haircuts that I had when I was <laughs> there, is some fuck. There are some real bad ones, man. Horrible was I didn't tell anybody about what I was going through. I think we as people are too stoic in everyday life, and we're happy to celebrate the positives. But when something negative's going on, we just don't talk about mm. it. I didn't tell anyone, and I'm an idiot because if I had told my brother, how my brother Zach, who's my best mate how I was feeling, he would have helped me straight away. But I felt like a burden on him, my family. So I didn't tell anyone. I wouldn't, like as soon as I started talking about it, I felt better. Uh, and another thing a mate of mine was, was having a house party. And um, like, I don't I felt like I had friends at school, uh, but I just wasn't getting invited anywhere out of school. And I thought that was because they hated me because I was different, right? And I'd built up this narrative in my head and, a mate of mine was having a party and I didn't get invited. And I was like, that's bullshit. So I said to my brother, Zach, you know, what do you do when you don't get invited to a party? And he said, well, me and my mates just jumped the fence. <laughs> primo, primo advice for your brother in a wheelchair. And I just decided to turn up, right? I had four UDLs, legend, uh, and knocked on the door and my mate opened the door and he had this shocked look on his face. And I remember thinking, Dylan, you idiot, why'd you come? And he said, Dill, mate, I, like, I'm sorry we don't invite you places. I didn't. I got two stairs to get into my house or a couple more. I didn't really know how we would go about it. Now, I can get up two steps, you know, we've, you and I have been to places we probably <coughs> talk about it yep. on this podcast together with stairs, <laughs> revs. And, um, and, and, you know, we can get upstairs, we can do whatever we want. I don't need a carer. I can go to the bathroom. But my mates didn't know all this. Yep. So. What I, and actually, they were embarrassed to talk about my disability with me. But more important than that, I was embarrassed to talk about my disability with them. I used to shy away from it because I wasn't proud of who I was. So it was like a sliding doors moment. And from that day on, I decided to never let my disability get in the way of anything I wanted to do. Talk about it whenever I felt like I needed to. Be proud of it. And that's when my life changed forever. It's unbelievable, man. And, and it shows that now, like you've just embraced it. You are the motto of this show, which is be yourself. Everyone else is taken. And we, we live that. We love it. Everyone, I think that realizes that now they realize how special it is when you can just be yourself. A question with that though, in terms of your mate with the party, do you think, sorry, the problem is sometimes people do feel uncomfortable to like ask those tough questions which actually makes it harder in general in in that time yeah for sure i mean i'll ask you right now if you want to find out something about your able-bodied teammate at footy or your co-workers what do you do just ask them you just fucking ask them don't you 
all of a sudden when you've got a disability, can't ask him, going to offend him. Yeah. How's it going to go? As long as you do it in a tactful way. So don't come up to me in a bar and go, hey, Dylan, why are you in a wheelchair? Or, hey, Dylan, yeah. can you feel your dick or whatever, right? Yep. Which is my two most answered question, yep. questions. You know, buy me a beer first at least. <laughs> um, but, you know, like as long as you build up a rapport before you ask those questions, you can ask whatever you want. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, it breaks my heart when I, I try and help I hate the word help, but change perception so people with disability can get jobs. And what I always hear is, oh, I was about to give this person with cerebral palsy and electric wheelchair a job, got to the final question. I was going to ask them, all right, what do you need in terms of your disability work? But I felt like I couldn't, so I gave the job to an able-bodied person. Mm. Ask them the question. Yeah. Right? right? And I think the more you talk about, you know, race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, whatever, the more it's normalised, right? And and I think disability is the one that's the least normalized now in society. So, you know, it's about talking about that and things like that. And, uh, uh, but, but it's also up, not up to them. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. They can't, it, the onus isn't on able-bodied world to include me. I've got to meet them halfway. You've got to be a part of it. I've got to yeah. be a part of it. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is you've got to buy a ticket to win the raffle. If that kid's at home playing, playing PlayStation still, am I going to the Paralympics? Am I talking to you right now? No way. Because I'll just be at home. As soon as I put myself out there, this goes for anyone. You know, if you see someone you like at a bar who thinks good looking, go ask them on a fucking date. If you want to get a job, a, a pay rise or a promotion, tell someone. They're not going to just find you sitting there, right? Whatever you put out in the world, things tend to happen. You've got to make, you know, I, I, I don't believe in luck as such, but you make your own luck because mm. you put yourself in a situation where things can come. And um, But I, it's hard, you know, when you get when you're disabled and you get knocked back from every bar you go to, you just stop going to bars. When you never go on a date, you don't go on Tinder because you just think, what's the point? Yeah. So it's about all of us showing that we are an accessible, inclusive place so people can get out there and do what they want. You must, I suppose, take, that must be like everything you've done, you've won all, uh, all, all Australians, you've won Oz Opens, you've won Wimbledon, you've won all these amazing things, you've written books, everything. But the one thing I feel would be the most special is having impact on people. And that's not just disabled people. That's, you know, you've had an impact on me. Like I said before, that story about just kicking ass, saying, nah, fuck this, I'm just going to go do it. Have you had any people, and I'm sure you have, but any stories stand out about um, any member of a disabled community that's gone like, you know what, I wasn't going to do this, but fuck it, you've done this for me. Oh, look, I don't like- There's millions. Two to mine, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, one, so I run a, um, a music festival called Ability Festival. Mm-hmm. It's a music festival like any other festival, like Splendor, like Beyond the Valley. We just have some added accessibility features so people with a disability can come with their able-bodied mates. We have elevated platforms, pathways. We have Auslan sign language interpreters signing every lyric on stage. Have you ever seen sign language to rap music? I haven't. It's like someone having an epileptic feature. <laughs> it is impressive. Um, there's like sensory quiet areas for people with sensory disabilities like autism. We've got everything, right? Yep. And um, all the proceeds go to my foundation to help the Dylan Orcott Foundation to help young kids with disabilities achieve their dreams. Anyway, we're there and um, I see this young kid, he's a guy comes to me, his name's Mark, he's in an in a, a electric wheelchair and um, he comes up and he's pretty much in tears and he comes up and he says, and his sister and says, mate, I just want to say thank you. Um, this is the best day of my life. Mm. Now he's 22 years old. He'd never been to the footy, the cricket, a shopping centre, a festival, anywhere with his mates in an environment that was fully inclusive and fully accessible. That was the first time, right? And I didn't do it for that reason. I just did it because I wanted to get loose and put on a good show and have a good time. Um, And then, you know, uh, 
a few months later, Mark passed away. And uh, he, he actually also told that story to a mate of mine who was his doctor before he passed away. He told somebody that he didn't know about his best dad. Didn't know life. you knew them. And that was my mate from school. Yeah, I, mean, I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps too. Yeah, yeah, fuck. And I don't do it for that reason, man. But my purpose in life is not to win Grand Slams and gold medals. My purpose in life is to change perceptions so people, all people, but especially people with disabilities, can get out there and live the lives that they deserve to live. Everybody deserves to go to a festival and have a beer, deserves to go on a date, deserves to have a job, deserves to play sport, right? Everyone does. So it's about finding ways to do that. And that's why I get out of bed, brother. And tennis gives me that platform, which is cool. And it's people like you, friends of mine who have helped me be me. Hey, I know we joked about revs or whatever, but you're like, okay, upstairs. Mm. If you're not doing that, well, then I wasn't going out to places. You know, your producer Sam's a mate of mine from high school and he knows because he's been one of them, but how good my mates are to never leaving me behind. That gave me the confidence to help me be who I am. And now it's just more the public as well because I actually might know my name or whatever it is. And, you know, all that really helps me with my mission, which is to try and keep smacking down those those you know, glass ceilings, as we call them, to help people get out and be the people they want to be. I need you to flex on me. You've done a lot. You've met a lot of people. Talk me through your top three fave peeps you met. Okay, number one is, we very, very lightly touched on it before, but the proudest I've ever been of myself was at Meredith Music Festival. I had played tennis for 24 hours in a row, nonstop the day before. I broke the world record. I raised $200,000 for my foundation. Had a little sleep, and then I went straight to Meredith because I knew that the Wu-Tang Clan was playing Ghostface Killer in particular. Now, we got there, I had a couple, and he, I'm 50 metres in from the mosque, and he goes, we need someone to come up and spit the Method Man verse of Protect Your Neck, my favourite song, the last song I listen to of every time I play. And I was like, me. Anyway, crowd surfed. He picked me after, he didn't want it because he thought I was going to fuck it up. And then he stands over you. He's like 6'5", huge, Ghostface Killer's massive. He's like, are you going to fuck this up? Are you going to embarrass yourself? And I was like, bro, <laughs> do you want me to do all seven verses? That's what I said. Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. But I was call like, him, I'm on one here. Yeah. And he goes, cool. Anyway, it was like watching a car crash because he, he, it's my bit and the crowd is like silent. Who's this guy? No one knew who I was then. Was like, yeah. Who's this guy in a wheelchair? You know, it was like, it was like slow-mo. And all my mates are going to my brother. What's this fucking, what is he do? I know he loves attention. What is he doing? Zach's like, don't you worry. He's got it. And then it was like, he threw it to me and it's like, it's the method man for short, Mr. Meth, move it on your left. Ha! And then launched into it. And the crowd went, I'm just, it was, I got good. It was a bit. Yeah. Because I'm expected to win tennis tournaments, correct? Expected to play basketball well. It's my job. Am I a rapper? No. So to not, not yet. To not choke with your favorite rap group and rap. Yeah, it's huge. Best thing ever. Huge. And, and then it got to be a better a friend of ours, a uh, friend of mine, Lozzie Hughes, worked at a promotion company and 18 months later, I stayed in touch with them and 18 months later, the Wu-Tang Clan couldn't get back into Australia because Ghostface, Inspector Deck and a couple others had gun charges from like 92. So they got blocked. So I didn't think this played a role at all, but I wrote a letter to the Department of Immigration. I was like, hi, it's Dylan Alcott, OAM, wheelchair tennis player, you know. When I was in hospital, um, Wu-Tang got me through like mayonnaise all over it. And guess what? The next day they got in. Oh my God. So the RZA, the head of Wu-Tang called and was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. 
And I was that like, is the best story, man. Bro, ever. So then at Rod Lay, I rap with Wu Tang again. That's pretty cool. And Wu Tang's like my favorite band. I listen to it's the last song I listen to every time I play. Tech. You've written a, the letter though. Yeah, That's unbelievable. The letter. the letter was the most had so much GST on it by me. That's sick. Anyway, I reckon it played no role, but they it just did the next day they got in. So they were like our savior, the little cute white guy in a wheelchair. I call myself young disabled bastard. Um, so that's one. Yep. Uh, you, 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 you produced a Sam showing time because I got on stage. Uh, sounds like a bit of a uh, name drop, but I've met Calvin Harris. who was a good bloke. And I sounds had, like it. had a little peck of Kesha. Oh. Yeah. So maybe Kesha. That's okay. Cool. Um, I've very strangely was in Argentina when I was 14 years old and, uh, I was playing tennis back then a little bit as a junior and I came out of an elevator and there was like a red velvet rope and I was like, it's kind of weird. And, uh, I don't like, I don't like lining up or, you know, very lucky in a wheelchair, kind of circumnavigate anything. I was like, what's this doing here? So I went under the rope and I ran into the foot of Diego Maradona, the Dalai Lama. The d- Where? That was, the Dalai- I ran into his ankle pretty hard. Like, what did he say? He just turned around and smiled and I was like, that's gotta be bad luck. I was 14. I freaked out. Freaked the out. The Dalai Lama. Wow. Yeah, but maybe he blessed me because- I think he did, bro. Good up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's was pretty a, cool. That's pretty cool. I had, like, I had dinner with Joe Biden. That's very cool, uh, man. I think, yeah. So I've been lucky to meet some pretty cool people, but I'd rather have a Palmer with my mates. Yeah. Well, I'm, that, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not frothing for that. I'm, 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 I'm very lucky that I've, uh, you know, I've done some crazy, like meeting Calvin Jarrett's private, Calvin Harris' private jet, thanks to my mate Tyson and- all kinds of stupid shit that I never thought happened. So, yeah, I've lived a pretty cool life, luckily. From episode 101, Max Gorn. Let's go to the football journey. Yep. Um, incredible journey that I know of so far. I don't know a lot about the start of it, but pick 34, yep. 2009. Take me back to that stage because I think there's two things that someone my age knows about footy. One is that Scott Penderbury used to play basketball and the other is Max Gorn used to smoke darts. Aren't they two great stories? Like they are the t- they're the yeah. two stories that like and we're both, anyone just and, of a plane that and we're comes both and, captains. And we're both captains of <laughs> AFL clubs. Like if you could hear that stories, both of them, any more times, shoot me. Yeah. But I actually don't know the origin of yours and is, if it's even true. It didn't get to you? No, 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 no. I didn't. I think I just zoned out. After I thought like, James McDonald took it to GWS. Uh, no, I was, I'd gone by that stage. Yeah, but I, I just thought most of the guys would have known that James McDonald... Uh, there's a, there, there is a lot of tax. I've heard stories come back to me. Yeah, okay. And apparently I was having a cigar in a, lim- <laughs> in a limousine. <Yeah. laughs> um, no, look, I, I, I would love a party dart as a 17-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I think most people did. Well, I thought most people did. Yeah. Um, apparently, people who wanted to be footballers uh, didn't. But, <laughs> um, and I, I think when I, I got, got drafted, um, I was driving down. I think I drove my mates out the night before. Um, and as I was driving down to Casey, I looked in the back seat and there was a deck of darts there. And I just thought, why mm-hmm. not? Yeah. And I went up a dart and albeit Carl Cheney was on the Monash freeway as well. <laughs> Who would have thought that there would have been a teammate who lived in the same area going to Casey at, <laughs> at 7 a.m.? At the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Ballsy move doing it on the Monash. Um, and I didn't see him. So he saw me and I didn't see him, which would have been great because I would have had both windows down. Yeah. <laughs> obviously trying to circulate the air, the cigarette smell out of the car. Um, and he would have just been, I can only imagine what his look would have been. Just like, yeah. just staring at me going, yeah. what is that bike doing? <laughs> and then I've got to the club. I actually, I don't know. If, I don't think I would have tried to cover up the smell because once again, I would have thought nothing of, yeah. of it. 
now when you smell someone who's had a smoke, you go, you've, you've had a smoke. And yeah. I'm just thinking, I would have reeked walking into the club that day. And then leadership group hit me up two or three days later. So everyone knew for like two or three days. And I was already a bit of like an introverted, which is funny because I'm an extrovert mm. now. But when you first get to clubs, you're a bit introverted and oh, shy. Yeah. Mm. And I was already like going in, not talking to anyone, going home, not texting anyone the night. Like I was a bit of a loner. Yeah. Try and picture me get, about to get in trouble from the leisure group and no one talking to me for three days until the leisure group spoke to me and me not knowing what's going on. That was a phenomenal three days. <laughs> so you just, you're at the club, no yeah. one speaking well, to you. Well, just no one brought up the smoking yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. I was carrying on, I was in rehab because I was a, I was a knee Rico, uh, drafted with a Rico, which makes it all better. Like drafted with a Rico, having a dart in the car, yeah. it's still here. Um, and yeah, I, and I remember the leisure group. We had 10 man leisure group. That's pretty, it's like a it was a full like, semicircle. Like a quarter of the list. Full semicircle at Casey Fields, and we weren't sitting, we were standing. And there was space, like almost COVID, like one and a half meters apart. So it was quite daunting. Um, and one person would be speaking, like Brad Miller was speaking all the way over here. And at the same time, Brett Maloney was over, <laughs> over here, and he'd come in. And then James McDonald, who wasn't the one you wanted to look at because he was the one that hated you the most, he was right in the middle. And that was pretty daunting. I can imagine that. That sounds. I got me off the darts. Yeah, well, that that's yeah. one way of getting off the darts. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. Like I suppose, and, and again, not throwing any of these guys under the bus here, but I feel like a few of those guys, maybe in that leadership group, without knowing a lot of them, might not have had the authority to be telling you not to do anything <laughs> wrong. I needed the whack for the darts. Yeah, and I completely. But I look back on that and. I get footy culture and I'm glad that I got to get drafted in that part of mm. footy because now it's completely different. Like first years have more say than than, than, Anyone. than captains now. So, um, but back then it was it was first year players. Yeah, you bide your time. You spoke when spoken to that sort of setup. And I've got so many things I I would like to change from that era. But um, I was a different kid and I was asked to be this stereotype drafted footballer that I was nowhere near being. Um, and yeah that first year I'm lucky I'm still here to be honest like probably the height would have helped a lot mm. um, and I played good footy when I finally in the VFL I played some good footy but yeah I would, I'd, I'd change a few things about how football clubs used to be back then when you've got players that feel comfortable and they're happy at a club they're going to help the younger players yep. but when you've got senior players that aren't happy or they don't even know themselves why would they help younger players to develop through yep. and that's what I feel like Melbourne have got now and what you've just stated because from every single person we've spoken to every single um, friend of yours or anyone at Melbourne Footy Club, the one thing that has just been the direct correlation to you is the fact that of your emotional intelligence and your connection to players. Um, and that trumps your ability to play footy, to be the best ruckman, to be, you know, whatever it is off field, but that's your biggest talent is emotional yeah. intelligence connecting with players. Do you think that that is learnt from previous experiences and, and why do you think it's so important, I suppose, in developing these guys? 100%. Like I, I mean, I'd... I'd love to be captain I didn't put myself up to um, I didn't demand the, like I demanded the spot in my actions I didn't demand the spot in my hand and say I want to be captain but I, I, I love the role and I see it um, slightly differently to some because I've once again drafted with Rico, um and then had another one during my career played 50 VFL games have been at the end of every contract wondering if I was going to get a new one have been times where I got a contract quite early and I was quite comfortable have been playing good AFL football um, like I've been dropped 13 times or something like, mm. which is a lot for someone that's still on a list um, so I've been I've been there um, and I can synthesise with synthesise 
sympathise. Yeah, you've got my disease. It's <laughs> just making up words. With where everyone's at in on 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 the list. Um, so someone who's in a long term injury like Tomo, hmm. I know what he's going through. A little bit different. I was young and he's a mature player, so it might be a bit harder for a twenty seven year old going through a knee reco, but. Um, and then the guys who are emergency week after week after week, which is the toughest role in football when you're nonstop emergency. I, I, I do know how to handle that, com- that conversation. Um, and obviously previous experience. I, like I'm, my mind was a sponge when I was young and I'm trying to fit into this stereotype of being a footballer that I, that I, sh- that I definitely wasn't. Like James, uh, Brad Green wore cargo pants one day to training. Next day, I've got cargo pants. Like I'm straight out, <laughs> I'm straight out getting cargo pants. <laughs> like Brett Maloney one day came in and said, "Cool hat, man. I wore that hat for the rest of the year." <laughs> like genuine sponge. Like I'm taking anything these guys are giving, and then I realised my role now to an 18 year old coming in. If I like, if I said to 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 Jake Bowie. He's young, red-headed uh, kid. If I called him a ranger first up, mm. like what he's going to get from that compared to me saying like nice right foot there at training or mm. something like that, just something easy like that. It's amazing how much eighteen-year-olds just are a sponge. They want to learn. They want to learn everything, not just footy. They want to learn how to live like a footballer and how to be a Melbourne footballer. Yeah. Oh, mate, that hits me. I burned. Yeah. I burned the cargo pants. I like cargo, cargo pants. Were called when were you drafted? Uh, 2011. You might have just got a bit of cargo pants. No, I, I missed them, but I'm actually back on them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm actually back into them now. Yeah. I try and get them early. I try and pick the trend and get on it early, so I can say I did that first. Like the whole club was wearing cargo pants. I, I couldn't bought, believe yeah, it. I got cargo shorts from um, Target the other day. Target. Yeah. I yeah. came in wearing skinny jeans, which are also not a thing anymore. No, no, I wear the fat boys. The fat, yeah, but fat I jeans. came in wearing skinny jeans, which I thought were a thing in oh, 2010. So you and then early. you're done wearing them. Yeah, you went real cargos on, mate. Hey, one thing, um, again, I, I feel like I've stalked you because I, I, I'm assuming here, um, and don't assume because it makes an ass out of you and me, but I'm, I am yep. assuming this from our conversation we've had and the way you lead and something I'm trying to work on is I saw this really cool, um, I'm going to say concept about leadership a while ago and I'm not good at this because I just want to talk all the time. And you know, as a leader, like sometimes listening is the best thing to do. Yep. And it was saying something like, be the last person to speak in the room. Because by the time you've let everyone else speak, your opinion's probably going to change by the end of it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, Viv Mitchell is a, a good friend of yours and a good friend of mine. He said, like, Gorney is, is, is so calculated. Like, he always sort of waits for people to do it. Then you make your decision at the end. And I just want to know, is that something you actually try and do? Because for me, it's so hard not to just fuck... Because I just want to, like, talk all the time. Yeah. But by the time I've spoken and then someone else gives their point, I'm like, fuck, I, I've changed my mind now. I probably should have said that. I don't like speaking first. That's uh, that is something. Might be a little bit of nerves as well. Like, there's everyone still gets them. So, and I and I do like speaking at some point, but I like to take my time and have a feel of the room. Um, deep, deep, deep down, I self doubt, which I think most people do, and I self doubt about am I doing the right message. Um, and on field is the hardest part of that because on field you're under extreme pressure. So that's something I've always had to fight through. And now as a leader, I'm trying to always upskill in my, in my doubt and upskill knowing the game plan to an absolute T, knowing my teammates to an absolute T, um, to be able to convey the right message, but not doubt the right message because people can sense doubt straight away, mm. especially under high pressure at the G. Um, so the, like the on-field stuff, I'm certainly still working on and, and I still 100% would say Jack Viney is, uh, he plays like a leader. Yeah. 
um, and and he really leads by example. I've, I've I played a different role. Ruck, there's only one ruck, and no one's ever played it, which is always unique. The other 42 players, apart from the backup <laughs> ruck, have not played ruck, where yeah. most players have played every other position. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's such a unique role, and we also like it's at sometimes it's like a 17 man defence, and then the ruck. Like I'm sometimes you're in your own game. Yeah, you, it's just ruck v ruck sometimes. Yeah, yeah. so it's it, it, it's a nice little thing to try and get into everywhere else, but they can't understand what you're doing at times. So a ruck captain's quite unique. There's a few of us now: Jared Whitson, Ben McAvoy. Um, we got a little crew going. Um, <laughs> me and Witsy, tallest coin toss at, uh, ever, 208 centimetres both. Oh, he's 209, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's quite a unique position, Ruck, and I love it. Um, but, yeah, my on-field stuff is still still with a bit to go. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not where Vines is on that, but Vines is also leads by example, but then he, he can sometimes be so focused on the ball that sometimes if he gets about the structure or something like that so we're, we're, we're a good balance it's awesome is there a ruck code is that that what you're just saying then like i feel like there's this ruck code with with like a few guys do you, do you really like respect each other do you critique each other's games do you get around each other like every other position on the field you know you back versus forward it's quite niggly or aggressive but i feel like ruckman sometimes you sort of look after each other a bit it's just unique like there's literally <laughs> you'd say Full forward and full back yeah. are the only other position where it's like you're just together all day, and you're judged right. on the other guy's performance. Yeah, where the other sixteen people just run around chasing the nari, yeah. <laughs> and like Clay Oliver gets given best on ground if he has thirty-seven and three, but Merritt could have fifty. Yeah, yeah. but Clay Oliver still gets best on ground. If yeah. my opponent had fifty touches. I'd be at Casey. Like yeah. it's just <laughs> the ruck roll is so delicate it's in that it is part. Flawed, like yeah. you really basically, if you haven't watched the game, like I, are you going to watch Gold Coast Richmond tonight? I would definitely replay that and code it. I'll probably watch it from the third angle. Actually, we'll both go yeah. on the AFL app and check the stats after and see what's done. And yeah. we'll look at the ruck battle. Chol v uh, Gold Coast don't have a ruck at the moment. He's not wits. Zach, let's say Zach Smith Zach was Smith, playing, yep. and we'll look. Zach Smith had less touches than Chol. Chol had more hitouts. Chol won the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And that's that's yeah. that's the ruck battle mm. for some reason to majority mm. of people. Obviously, it's a little bit more technical to coaches and and rucks, but that's why it's unique. Um, and you're playing each other pretty much the whole day. I've got Luke Jackson now, which helps. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got Mummy this week. I'm presuming teams are teams out. I'm I'm, I'm presuming he's yeah. playing. Um, and it's like the tenth time I've played him. Like, how many people get to say they've gone one on one with someone ten times? I feel they only definitely only bring mummy in for like when they need to try and intimidate someone. So I can categorically guarantee you playing this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like I've I've, I've played Brody Grundy six or seven times, and he's pants me, then I've pants him, then we've had a stalemate, then like it's just. I find it unique, but there yeah. is there is some good characters in there. But there's too many guys that are doing that are too athletic now. Like yeah. it's Who, who's who's some guys that you just don't want to ruck against? If you you know you don't have to give up your secrets now. But well, these young there? these young guys are looking good. Yeah, like like I played Sam Draper on the weekend. Um, he sets the tone, and we and we had a we had a good battle. But watching him against Hawthorne, I'm like. I was actually going into this game going, I've got a 10-gamer and I'm, I'm a bit worried. I think I might have to play on him. Like, tag, tag, tag him. Obviously, it's been set by... Brody's done some amazing things in the ruck game. Like, he's follow-up and goal-kicking and inside 50s mm. and, like, he's added these stats to our stat sheet, which we never had. Um, Nick Nat just dominates centre bounce. Like, not... People just think it's the ruck work, but it's... Yeah. He's... I think he's fifth for clearances. Like, mm. he... That part of the ground, he makes it his own and... 
people go, oh, he might not take many marks. But my number one goal is center clearance. My third goal is marking. So he's winning like the ruck number one goal. Um, and then there's like guys like Tom Hickey, um, Scott Scott Lysett, Riley O'Brien. Like it's just everyone's quite unique. They've got different strengths. Hello, my beautiful friends and family. Guess what? I am back. I am back. Third time lucky. My third time drafted in my life. I'll be making a return to footy as a part of the Carlton Draft, along with some big household names. Not as big as my name, but uh, some quite big names. Isaac Smith, Trent Cotchin, Matty Lloyd. Lee Montagna, some of the all-time greats of our game, as I've just mentioned. One lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT Aaron Phillips to play as a wildcard. How bloody good is that? If you're a part of women's community footy and you are keen to get Aaron down, enter now at thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com.au. From episode 82, Patrick Cripps. Mate, I want to talk to you about a moment, and I hope that you remember this, and I'm, I'm sure you will because it was a fair game. But I feel like from chatting to some of your friends, um, and especially before you mentioned 2018, 2009, that time when you might not have been enjoying footy as much as you should, um, you could have, there was a game at the end of the year, and around this time you were just cooked, mentally exhausted. Um, you were absolutely stuffed. And from good authority, that was a space you were in. The next day... You went out and had 39 kick four in probably one of your best games you ever played. From all reports, that was probably a big turning point to you to realise how important all this stuff was. Yeah, no, it's spot on. I um, Yeah, I, I've told the story to a few people and they laugh. They're like, oh, you couldn't have been feeling bad. But honestly, I was um, I was so close to pulling out that week. I was just so, yeah, I just was in a good space mentally. It's probably the six weeks lead up of just... I know it's like I think in that space we'd won three games out of forty-four. Um, you, you're trying to give so much, and um, yeah, just you, you want to win basically. And um, and that was the week that um, Bolts got got fired, and um, I had a really good relationship with Bolts. Um, and yeah, it was it was a tough week, but I was just mentally cooked. And I remember like I had no energy. I'd come home, I was lethargic. Um, a part of mine was just like you're just not yourself at the moment. But I couldn't see it. Like when you're in a bit of a hole like that, you just don't see. You just knackered. And um, I remember going to Andrew Russell, Jack, and um, on Thursday, and I said, "Mate, I don't think I can play." And he goes, "Just give it another few days. You see how it goes." And like had my head in the hands. I couldn't even look him in the eye. I was just like nearly a broken human. Mm. Anyway, I went around Bainey's house, who's my manager, uh, the night after just for a feed. Um, and I, was sit- I remember sitting on his bench and he's like, are you pumped for tomorrow? I was like, mate, I just don't think I can do it, eh? And he goes, what do you mean? Like, I, was, I, just, I just don't think I can play tomorrow. And um, I, was at- I was really close to pulling out. And, like, I'm not putting any mail on this story at all. Um, but yeah, the next day I, I sort of woke up and I'm like, all right, um, I'm a leader of this footy club. It's been a big change. Um, how I show up is going to be a reflection of the group. Uh, and I remember even driving to the game with Eddie had, and, and I was cooked in the car, but I was like, all right, I made a thing to myself. All right, when I go to the chain rooms, I'm going to be up and about, going to have energy, and I'm just going to have fun playing today. And um, yeah, mate, it was, it was a weird one. Like, I was so mentally cooked. And um, yeah, I just had one of those games where I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. You just you get into that that state where you just just happens. Um, and it was, it was one of the, it was just one of my happiest moments of footy. Not because I played well. It was more just I don't know. We just the the group like was just so pumped because we hadn't won much. Like it was just a special day. I remember the seeing the fans just smiling um, in the rooms. Like everyone was smiling. And then that night we actually went back 
um, to the club and um, we sat around a fire and had a few beers and everyone just had a chat and it was just a real moment that I'll never forget where it's just everyone bonds and like, that's what footy's all about. I know you work so hard throughout the week and you said it before, like you got to have some fun and I really like enjoy getting around everyone having a beer after the game and just relaxing and um, yeah, it was an awesome day and then even after that, mate, I, like I, that next week I just, I was knackered like I, uh, we had the bye the week. No, we played the Bulldogs and we had the bye the week after and I asked for a bit extra time just so it was cool. Went back to the farm. Well, I was sleeping 12 hours a night back on the farm. I just absolutely knackered. I actually broke my toe um, in that game. Um, so I played the Bulldogs the week after, got stepped on again, then I missed three weeks with, with a broken toe. So, um, yeah, a lot happened that time. But it sort of gave me a real appreciation for uh, the power of the mind and no matter what you're going through, um, that self-talk and you can get yourself in a state of mind of like you can you can perform um and like I, like you said before it really opened up that space of like all right how can i then get better through sort of stuff with the mind um show the importance to guys around with the mind but then also the the from a not from a performance point of view but just the well-being side of like you got your physical health you got your mental health um and making sure you're looking after and at the time i didn't know how much i was struggling but people around me saw it and that's i, I suppose you go in even deeper it's like with the mental health side you never know what people are going through and a lot of people would experience that in the last sort of nine months but just ring a mate and just ask you know mm. what i mean because and they might not uh like straight away they might not open up you keep probing probe and then all of a sudden they might just open up to you so um yeah, I'll probably dribble on a bit, a bit long there. But, no, mate, um, I, was, yeah. I was immersed in that. A lot of people from the public would look at you and think, fuck, this has been an easy ride, you know, and this guy's come in and, um, you know, been a high pick, made captain of the club, um, you know, won BNFs, all these sort of things. How hard is it to deal with that each week? Because I think even looking back and giving more context, you know, you had this career that from the outside had seemed like it had just been coming up the whole way. No one had sort of seen the work that had gone into it. And then I think in that uh, 29 season you were saying, I think there was a bit of a, you're injured and there was a bit of form and then quickly people had to jump on being like, oh no, what's going on with this bloke now? Why isn't he, he performing? How have you sort of dealt with that adversity? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, oh, look, there's, there's always gonna be challenges thrown at you. And um, I think uh, the first bit's just like, I'm getting used to, to I suppose being in the public eye I found that really tough at the start but um, that's where the beauty of like, you chat to people and um, I don't know just people there to help and then yeah it's been like it has been tough and um, I'm a big believer that like um, adversity builds your character you know what I mean like the things that you go through um, they're really challenging once you come out of them like it really builds resilience in your character um, and yeah like I've, I've been through a certain things and um like mine on a life scale compared to other people's is minor, you know what I mean? Like this is all footy stuff. Mm. Like you got injuries, like I've broken my leg three times, um, probably because I don't have a calf muscle. <laughs> um, uh, like losing like a lot when we're in a winning business and um, yeah, you try and do everything right to, to get a, a, a club going forward. Um, then when you form, like last year my form wasn't the best that I wanted, but um, one thing, like yeah, like I said before, you reflect, you learn, and you grow. And even last year, like I didn't have my best year, but I hang my hat on that I had a crack every week, and um, that's all you can ask for. And that, I go to sleep at night after a game that, um, you know, I, I gave them my best effort. Um, I always give my best effort. Once the game finishes, you obviously sometimes going to be frustrated the way you play, but you move on. And that's like the identity thing I said. Um, what I really learned from that Ben Crow thing is 
me as a person is so different to me as a, as a footballer. Um, so once I know that I've leave the field and, and I've given them all, that's me as a footballer done, that it's not going to change me as a person. And that's really helped me um, to really just keep balance in my life and um, stick true to who I am. And it also allows me to, when I do go on the field, I can play with aggression in that and mm. play on the edge and um, play my way knowing that's not actually me as a, as a person, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, 100%. So, Separating um, the person from the persona. Yeah, exactly. How old were you when you became captain? Uh, I think I was 23. Uh, what was it, 20? Yeah, I think I was 23 turning 24. Yeah. it's pretty young. What have you learned from leadership when you first became captain to now? What have been the biggest changes? Yeah, there's been a lot. Um, I think same thing, learn a lot more about myself. Um, I think when you're captain at a young age, the hardest thing is setting the standard, um, but still, I suppose, you still want to be close to the group, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to turn into this policeman-like person and say, mm-hmm. what are you doing going out in the piss? You know what I mean? Like, like what's this? And that's, you don't never want that. Like when you're a player, you don't want someone looking over your shoulder saying, what are you doing? Like you want to set the standard and there's going to be times when people mess up and you got to square them up and say, mate, that's not, that's not helping us or you. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing is building relationships, having sort of the care and empathy for people, like, um, and sort of knowing that everyone's a bit different. You know what I mean? Like, not everyone's going to be like me. And um, what I do is not going to be what other people do. So, you can't get frustrated if you see other people doing things. You try and help them as much as possible. Um, but you also get appreciation for who they, who they are. Um, and then, like, just working with Doc, like, we, I think we've both grown. Um, leadership group we've got at the moment is a really good group. I'm really enjoying it. Like, we've got a mix between young and old and me and Doc sort of in the middle, um, all very different. Um, and I'm actually loving it at the moment. Like, it's actually, it's very good fun, the leadership meetings. Um, but I think that having care and, and empathy for people and um, knowing that you knowing that you got their back and no matter what they're going through, um, that um, you, you're there for them. Last point on this, I suppose, and there's there's no hiding this fact, but you're obviously one of the biggest players in Melbourne. Um, it's not part of your nature to be, you know, like on social media, you're not like a loud person. How have you dealt with that? Because you're a big boy too. <laughs> you're growing every year. Um, <laughs> big for a midfielder. Big for a midfielder. It's hard to miss you out in social circles. That that must weigh on you a bit. You've seen like how many players these days are moving interstate. A lot of players going to Sydney um, to get away from it. Like how, how do you deal with that? Does it play on your mind? Is it is it annoying? Is it hard? Oh, like it has its challenges, not going to lie. Um, I, I struggled, like, I, like I've said it before, I struggled a lot with it early in my career just because I wasn't, like I'm still, it's 19, 20. I was mm. just felt like I was a normal 18-year-old, but people external put you up on this pedestal. And I'm just like, that's just not me. You know what I mean? I don't want to be there. I just want to go, I want to go to the pub and have a beer with the boys. I just want to have a beer and talk to them. Like, um, so it took me a while to get used to it, but... <laughs> I'll use another thing. So Juddy once said to me, he goes, look, because I asked him about it. I was like, how do you deal with it? Like, you're in Perth. That's like a fishbowl and you're like the biggest dog in the AFL. Um, like, I'm nowhere near your level, but like, how do you deal with it? And he's just like, well, the way I looked at it is like, can be not as good as I am? Yep. And just play any any league I want um, and just blend in or I can love what I do and be the best I can. And with that comes the recognition and I just got to learn to deal with it. And I was like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes sense. So from that, I sort of I, I changed my mindset around and said, you know what, um, take like, it as a, it's a blessing. Really. Yeah, like I, instead of um, neglecting it and not wanting it to say, look, it's going to come. Um, try and treat 
people with as much respect you can and at the same time um learn the places you can go to have a really good mates around you um and never get caught up in the in the hype of the external of, of the external stuff like people putting you up back to the identity thing like they see you as this this footy player they put you up but i and then they i'm just paddy Cripps who grew up in northampton from a country town i love my mates love my family um and enjoy having a beer with them and um yeah i just don't see myself as any different to that and that's sort of helped me really i suppose stay true to who I am and stay level-headed. Um, and that's even like, even around the club now, I've got so many good people that I just love mixing with and hanging out with. And um, yeah, you can just be yourself around, which I, I love. From episode 96, Matt DeBull. Um, mate, I've got one more story that I think will really sums you up as a person. Um, it's probably not what you think it's going to be, but there was one time when we were up in Sydney and something happened to you on the weekend in your personal time. And it really just made me realise, do not with Matt DeBoer on, off the field, in business, in life, in footy, in just anything at all. And it was a, a young man who, did he steal your wallet or did he find your wallet? Uh, this story. No, he uh, stole your bike. Bike and wallet. Bike and wallet. Please tell me this story because it's honestly one of my all-time favourites. Oh, this is Josh Kelly's favourite story, so I assumed <laughs> it would come up at some point. But yeah, essentially I was moving, it was the first few months of Sydney, um, I was moving into my new rental, Tendai Mazunga was helping me, where putting our you know, furniture in, carrying it from the car in, inside and um, maybe being a little bit sheltered. But I forgot to lock my car and uh, Tendo and I played a game of Madden or something and then my phone rings and all of a sudden it's the bank saying, there's some suspicious activity on your card. Um, we're going to cancel it. I thought, oh yeah, do, do that. And I've just jumped online <laughs> and seen the transactions of, of what's been happening and someone's essentially got my card and tapping going up the street, um, buying certain things and it finished at this pub. And I was like, righto jumped in my car and I just sped down there, um, got out, got into the pub and then uh, no one was there. I spoke to the owner and he was like, oh, we thought that was strange. When the card was declined, these guys just scattered. I was like, oh, mate, they've stolen my credit card. Um, and I don't know why, but I just said, can I look at the CCTV footage? I'm just like curious. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. So we've gone down down the stairs <laughs> into the into the dungeon to see the CCTV footage. He's rewound it and it's about four guys there um, having beers on me um, and then they take yeah I saw got my phone out once again don't know why I just felt compelled to and started taking photos of it I was like alright it's one of these four guys um, and then I just hopped back in my car I was like I'm just going to drive around see if I can find, see him in the streets I don't know what I would have done but driving around looking for him couldn't find him um, so I called the cops reported it did all the right things and then I realised that within my wallet there was a, a travel card and I hadn't um I had about 100 bucks left on it. So I didn't cancel that one because every time he'd use it, it'd notify me of where he was. So he, started, <laughs> so he, keeps, so he keeps using this card. Uh, I was out at a date night with my with my fiance at a Bondi and then he's used it somewhere you know, in the West. So I was like, right, we're going. I've ruined date night. We're hopping in the car, sped off to try and find this guy. Essentially called the cops on the way, doing all the right things. And then um, he'd left by the time I got there. Once again, I don't know who, what exactly what it looks like. I've got some sketchy photos of this CCTV footage. Um, anyway, so I was, I was trying to chase him around Sydney for a, a couple of weeks there, and unfortunately, I, I tore my hamstring um, in the second week, and you know I was pretty dis- disappointed about that. But um, I was due to go out for breakfast with the Mzungus on on the Sunday, um, and then so I was just waiting out the out the front, waiting for my fiance, and I see this guy walk past, and I was like, "That's that's fucking him." I've been studying this photo like Liam Neeson from, from Liam Neeson from Taken, and I was like, "That is him." And I sort of, 
And it, by, the, by that time, he's sort of down the street a little bit. And I've realized I've torn my hammy. He's like, what am I going to do? So I've jumped in the car, sort of sped up to him, got out of the car. And I was sort of hobbling along to him. And I sort of didn't know what to say. I was like, hey, mate. And I was like, what do I say? What do I say? And he's turned around him. And I said, have you got any ID? And then he's just looked at me and gone to run. So I was like, nah, I've just launched at him. I jumped at him. <laughs> I've tackled him to the tackled him to the ground. I was supposed to be this good tackler, but um, yeah. I ripped his shirt off his body and his and his hat fell off as well. And he got up and he went to scamper away. And I went to chase him and felt my hammy. I was like, oh, gee, I can't do that. Um, I can tell this story now. It's years ago. Um, so he got away, which is disappointing. But then picked up the, uh, the hat, dropped it off to the police. They ran forensics on it. He'd been arrested previously, so they had all his DNA. So they went and picked him up and 18 months jail. So don't steal from me, Dil. <laughs> I'll get you. <laughs> this bloke has just robbed you of a bike and a wallet and four beers, I think it was. And now he's doing 18 months. Yeah. From episode 122, Darcy Vessio. But I started playing, yeah, when I was five because my older brother Zeb played and Everything that he did, I was just, I wanted to do. And mum and dad were very supportive of that. So, yeah, yeah sort of played with Rowley up until I was 12 or 13 and then had one year um, at the Myrtleford Saints. And then, yeah, had to pack up mm. playing. And I remember I honestly did not think I would play in a league or anything again. I sort of thought that was that was it. Um there were a few other girls who had done the same thing. That were the only girl in the league. And then when they hit 14, like that's when they had to stop. So up until that point, I was like, that's my career. That's mm. what it looks like. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of just played a little bit of school footy, like once or twice a year um, when that rolled around. And then when I moved to Melbourne, that's when I slid back into footy just sort of by chance. And that was with the Falcons. Yeah, um, Darren yeah. Falcons. So just back on that point though, because it's, it's something that I've really, I can't imagine, you know, how hard that would have been to be, you love and playing footy and taking it away from you. But it sounded like what you were saying then is because there was no pathway, like it just, that in your mind, you're like, oh, okay, well that's, that's the way it is. Yeah. Like, is that what in that, at that time before there was something there that was just probably expect, like, was that what you just expected? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I knew, like, I think my parents made sure that I knew that it would be my last season, so it wasn't a shock or anything. Yeah. And because I'd seen girls before me have to stop playing, and because there was there was nothing there, like yeah. I couldn't. It's not like there was a pathway I knew I could go into or anything like that. Um, but it's funny, like I always felt like I was pretty at peace with it. Um, but then talking to mum and dad, I think they said like when I knew I was playing my last game, like I was in tears and everything mm. like that. But I feel like I must have just suppressed that memory. Um, but yeah, I felt like you only know what you know sort of thing. I think something that really stood out to me, and I hope that you still have this at Carlton, but it was like the game changes. Mm. And that was what you called yourself. Yeah. And I actually like really took that on board. So I was like, fuck, at the end of the day, like this is actually part of history right now. Like you yeah, actually are yeah. game changers. Yeah. You are changing the game. Mm. And still now like i think how fucked nine years ago like and it is where it is i think because we live it every day like like i think sometimes we forget like how quickly things have changed Mm. like it's been a lot of work for many decades to get to this point but when you're living it you can feel like oh like things are quite slow or um but then if i think of myself growing up like there was no aflw to look up to 
And I, I think I would have been an unbearable child if there was. Like mm. I would have been so obsessed. Yeah. I like I was obsessed with um yeah, with watching Saints and, you know, the stats and everything. But if there were women running around, I think I would have been yeah, just bouncing around. When did the the idea of it actually become reality? Like you, you moved down to Melbourne and play with the Darren Falcons. Mm. Um I remember watching the Darren Falcons because I used to live in Fitzroy and my mate lived in Preston and we'd catch a tram down and we'd play in the cricket nets and it was all, I think they played on, I think it was like a Sunday or something mm. like that, but we'd always play in the cricket nets and be watching the Darwin Falcons mm. play at the same time. Yep. <laughs> and like you were probably there at that stage. Yeah, yeah. But what was that like playing with the Falcons? Because like we see now, I think the two biggest clubs is, was it Diamond Creek and the and the Falcons? Yeah, yep. And you look at those two teams now and like literally not like 95% of those players are the best players in the AFL. Yeah, yeah. In the AFLW. Yeah. No, it was pretty cool. Like, um, as I said, like, I didn't intend on starting footy when I moved to Melbourne mm. as an 18-year-old. What did you move for, to uni or Yeah, or? yeah, to study graphic design. Um, and it was because I played netball with someone whose dad was like, oh, I know of this team. that you, Like, there's a women's league down there and I was kind of like, whatever. Um, and he got in contact with them and um, I think mm. my dad made a phone call and then... Um, yeah, mum and dad were, I reckon mum took me down the first training session, had a signed check for my fees and stuff. And it was amazing. Like I still remember the first time I walked in, like walking down the little hill and just seeing the girls kick. And I was like, I can't believe every girl is kicking a drop punt. They're Mm. all marking it in their hands. Like I was naive, but I, like, I genuinely thought I was the only girl who could sort of do that. Like, Mm. or I was you know, a special kind, but, yep. um, yeah, it was like walking onto another planet. Um, but yeah, I, I started playing there and at that point it was still sort of a hobby, like, yep. especially for me, like, um, you know, some of the girls were a lot more professional. Like I played with Daisy and, um, Astor O'Connor, Karen Paxman, Melissa Hickey. Um, and they were, they all carried themselves a lot more professionally than I did when I was an 18 mm-hmm. year old. But, um, yeah, I, I loved it and I thought it was awesome. And I remember it wasn't until I got given a, a jumper, a, a Guernsey, and I saw that it said the VWFL and I was like, oh, shit, this is a good league. Yeah. Because like, I'd heard about it and I didn't know. I didn't know. I was like, oh, I didn't know what league I was in or whatever. But I was like, no, nah, this is this is a good one. I'm in, yeah, I'm in, I'm in gold right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. That's um, elite. So, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, that's awesome. Um, and then – playing there, um, I think maybe it was in 2015, the first sort of exhibition, or actually, no, it would have been 2013, perhaps. The first exhibition game between Bulldogs and Melbourne was happening and you had to nominate yourself to be drafted. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it and thinking, like, it wasn't really a thing. Um, (laughs) But I ended up putting my form in. And I remember on the day of the draft, I emailed Jan Cooper, the woman who was organising it, and she's a huge figure in women's footy. She's done so much. And I was like, oh, hey, Jan, like, I haven't heard back about the draft tonight. Like, <laughs> am I like, am I in it? Yeah. And she's like, oh, nah, didn't get your form in time, um, but go anyway so you can enjoy the night with your friends. And I was like, no, like, what have I done? Um, so you didn't, you didn't submit your form? I didn't submit my form in time. I say I did because I reckon it was like, postmarked 
by the date, but they didn't get it in time. So I remember going on the night, I saw Daisy get drafted at number one and all my friends and I was pretty flat. Like I think it wasn't until the day of the draft that I was like, oh, no, this is like a thing. This is something I actually want to be part of. Um, But, yeah, like... And so what I rem- happened? Did you get... No, like I just, I wasn't in it. Like <laughs> the top 50 got drafted and I wasn't part of it. And I don't know if I would have been drafted, but I would have liked to have, you know, had my hat in the ring. But um, yeah, I remember Daisy dropped me home that night and she said, like, maybe contact Jan and see if you can like be water runner or something on the day. And I was oh, like, no. I was so mopey. I was like happy for her, but I was just really sad that I'd messed it up. Um, so yeah, that's where my head was at and where my organization skills were at pretty much. Um, I deserved it. Um, but then, yeah, the next year I got my draft for me on time and went to Bulldogs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it sort of wasn't until those exhibition games came. Um, and when we had the first televised game and stuff like that, um, when I thought, Oh, like the AFL's pretty invested in this and who knows what will happen. So, three exhibition games? Was it three or two? Yeah, I think. Um, three years there was ex- and, until the yeah, team started? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think it was over three years, but yeah. some years we had two games. So Yeah. From episode 117, Chankuath GF. Hey, so congratulations on your on your breakout year. Um, you've 2222 with the AFLPA, unbelievable. Take us back to the start of, of the season. What did you, you know, line yourself up with? What were the goals? Did you achieve everything you wanted? Mm. Was it something you'd planned to do or you, did you surprise yourself? Um, well, going away from last, the season before this season, I was very disappointed in my performance. I was like, and the club as well, us, everyone was just disappointed. So I was like, I went away, thought about things. Um, you know, I wasn't very happy. I was like, this isn't me. This is where I, this is not where I wanted. So What I, happened? So I made sure that I ticked every box, you know, when I went off and did my program mm. um, and just did everything I could um, to make sure, you know, I can come back better. Um, and it just takes a belief as well. Once you, once you know you, you know, you tick the boxes, you you can have confidence. Mm. But some people have it the other way. Some people can just have confidence straight away. But me, um, I had to tick a lot of boxes to just believe in myself. Um, so then I went away, came back in the preseason, um, you know, everyone was impressed because, you know, it was a big step from the season I had before that to to that moment. So it was just, yeah, it was, it was awesome to get that recognition as well. And it just fueled me even more to keep training really harder and play uh, play harder. Um, and then the first JLT match um, was pretty much when it took off. Um, that's when I just was like, yeah, this is it. This is where I want to be. What happened? Um, what was that conversation though, like at the end of 2019? with you know i'm assuming the coaches and staff like that made you sort yeah of change. so it was <clears throat> so it was with sam mitchell actually we were just sitting in the office I, would, I just went in there just to talk a bit of smack a bit of shit um went in there um and halfway through the conversation he just goes cj why, why are you not playing afl footy like you've got the speed you've got the athleticism like how come you're not playing every week i'm like that's a great question I'm like why aren't i so then I went away. That's just pretty much how how it started. Fuck. So yeah. he's just like, I think he would have known exactly what he was doing. Yeah, hundred percent. He's a genius. You, you can see a lot of potential, a lot of people. Um, Lockie Bramble. Um, he was in the uh, Box Hill um, program, and 
Mitch was a big belief of it, had a, big, a lot of belief in him, and yep. hence why he was drafted and playing a lot of good footy at the moment as well. Mate, I'd love to go back to, to your story and how you, well, would have to go right back, but how uh, you, your family got to Australia, how you got into football and, and, and talk about that pathway, because mm. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it, but it is truly incredible. Um, I'd absolutely love to, to hear it firsthand if you're happy to, to yeah. talk about it, but um yeah, what's what's the story? What's your what's your journey and, and yeah. how did it all come about? <clears throat> so, so born in Ethiopia, nineteen ninety nine. Um, South Sudanese parents. They fled uh, the war torn Sudan um, at that time. It wasn't it wasn't a South Sudan at the time. It was just Sudan. Um, they fled from Sudan to Ethiopia. Walked on foot for about I think it was six to seven days. Not not, not having any idea where they were going. Just finding somewhere to live and just getting away from how brutal that you know the whole place was and luckily they found um ethiopia um and then from there it was just you know trying to find trying to find food medicine um water because as you imagine there's not just it's not just my family there's about seventy thousand other families trying to flee sudan so you can imagine there's just a lot of scarce of you know medicine food water and all that so um, so I was born in Ethiopia in the refugee camp there. Um, but when I, what I could rem- remember from then, it was pretty much just, um, I didn't really worry about like what I didn't have. Like I was just worried about like playing soccer as a kid um, and just having fun with my friends and, and, and family really. Like I didn't even think about, you know, we didn't have food or didn't have water. It was just more about just having fun out there. And yeah, I could just remember you know, you know, hanging around with my brother and just kicking the soccer. And I have this, I remember this day, I've got a photo at home actually, I've got this Arsenal kit that I used to wear. I used to love Arsenal because my uncle goes for Arsenal. Um, and I used to just wear that t-shirt. Like every time I wanted to go play soccer, I just chuck it on and just pretend I'm like Henry or something. Yeah. And that's just probably the best memories I have um, from then. But growing up, you get told a lot of stories, um, you know, by your parents and, and how much they endured as, you know, growing up in there. Um, in a war-torn country and going from there to refugee camp. Um, yeah, but it was it was just, it would have been just tough. Like it, um, you know, there's, there's things called, you know, there's this child soldiers um, from a young age where you have to go, you know, fight for, you know, um, Sudan or, or in the military or something like that. And that's from the age of six to, you know, to whatever. Um and my parents didn't, you know, they didn't want us to be associated around that. So they moved from there to Ethiopia. But as you can imagine as well, it's just not food around there. So that's when we moved from Ethiopia to Australia as refugees. We got accepted in 2007 um, to come here in Melbourne. Um, different scenery, completely different. It was just, I remember just landing, just seeing bright lights and it's just like, what the hell's going on? And the whole the whole build up to landing from them, then going to my aunties and um, in Dandenong, we lived um, for about three months. So we went from the airport to Dandenong. So, you know, when there's like, so we're in the car and there was, I remember there was a truck right next to us <laughs> and we're going the same, the same speed and it just feels like you're just standing still. Yeah. That's a, that's the weirdest experience I've ever had. <laughs> that was the first car trip I've ever been in. Like besides, you know, being in a, a bus or anything like that. And how, how old were you at this stage? I was, six turning seven um and yeah it's it was just the weirdest feeling ever like you think you're standing still but you're actually just moving and i was just like wow i was just baffled but um 
but that's just my memory of just you know coming to australia so incredible um and you know your parents have absolutely fucking amazing for what they've what they've been able to do to to get to australia when you were talking um you're saying about like being in in sedan and there's parts where uh your parents are saying fuck we've got to get out of sedan to get to ethiopia because like you know the, the child soldiers and all these things can happen what what are some of those like stories that they were like fuck we just got to get out of here like was there a time where they were just like we we need to leave to to get to to flee to ethiopia yeah well <clears throat> sudan has been in a civil war for about it's still happening now but there was a stage where it stopped but before that i think that they went on for about 40 years of civil war um it was just a lot of conflict between the north and the south um um I think it's, it's got, you know, stuff to do with, you know, religion, um, you know, oil or stuff like that as well. But, um, and it just got worse and worse. And it was just, you know, kids being misplaced, families being taken away. Um, and that's when pretty much it's like, no, nah, we can't do this. So we've got to go from, we've got to go somewhere and anywhere we'll do. And that's when they just packed their bags and just left. Um, and yeah, <laughs> You know, six days of walking and not knowing where to go would have been tough as that's for sure. So when they're when they're walking like from uh, across countries, are they with people that are they're all going to, to similar situations? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just as you can imagine, there's you know pregnancies, um, you know, um, women with you know kids, just with luggages and just carrying stuff as well. You got kids on their back and they're just walking just to go somewhere just to live. Um, and they're just walking for days and days and just till they find something. That's pretty much what it was like. When you're in a, um, a refugee camp in Ethiopia, um, I'm not sure if you can remember these things now, but like how long does it take to then apply to go to another country to then rock up to yeah. you know, get approved to Australia? The process for us, I think it took about two years, my dad was telling me. Um, and it was a lot of waiting around happening. Um, you know, going from refugee, dad did a lot of trips from the refugee camp to Ethiopia in Addis Ababa, which is the city in Ethiopia. Mm. Um, and just a lot of trips about, you know, applications and all that. Obviously there's not much electricity in the refugee, so he has to go up and down. He did a lot of study as well. So he was speaking English, um, but as a genius, if you didn't know, speaks Arabic, um, my native language, which is nowhere. Um, and English at that time in Ethiopia. So he was very educated. Um, That's unbelievable. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he used to travel from the refugee camp to Ethiopia and just um, apply and just, you know, process, the whole process of just going from there to Australia was massive. What was it like, firstly, you know, probably a question for your family and your, your dad and, and your mum, but when they first got to Australia, what was the situation like? So you went to live with your auntie, you had family here already that had been yep. approved. Yep. How, how long have they been here for? Before us. So they were, I think they might have, they've been, I think I'm going to guess five years. Because mm. I remember leaving, I remember them leaving us when I was, I think when I was about, very young. I don't mm. know. I can't remember the exact age, but I remember them, them leaving before us. And yeah, so they were there before us and it made it, the whole transition so much easier. Yeah. So much easier. Like you would stay there, would go to school with the other kids living at, um, with my cousins as well there. And and it was, it was, yeah, we found that it was so much helpful compared to just us just coming here without knowing, not knowing anything. And when you first got to Australia as well, assuming that you weren't speaking English at that stage, it took, was it 12 months to? Yeah. 
so yeah i i knew i knew no english so it was um all i knew was hello and goodbye um but a lot of cartoons a lot of simpsons and <laughs> it helped me a lot i um i'm a big fan of simpsons still yeah. um we used, to, we used to watch a lot of cartoon straight from school and and also just you know learning from other kids as well was pretty helpful but just the whole you know not know how to communicate with other people was tough like from school um but you know we just as soon as the bell goes we just go to the soccer oval and just have a kick and that's how we met friends and just how that's how we communicated really mm. sport like was the biggest equalizer isn't yeah. it i think you've, i've heard yep. you say that before it was such yeah. an equalizer for you like it didn't yeah. matter about anything as long as you just could play sport with people that's how you made friends that's how you connected that's how you 100%. felt a part of it yeah yeah that's how that's how i felt and um I was, till this day i still believe that as well um um, Nelson Mandela is a big believer as well, as well. so he's one of the models as well growing up as well so um, like he's he's you know thought about the same as well so yeah from episode 119 Zach Butters hey um, we spoke earlier but uh, you know growing up in Dale you faced a fair bit of adversity uh, as a young bloke there with, with a bit of family um, issues and and um, and whatnot. are you happy to talk us through yeah, yeah. what happened yeah it was sort of like me and my sister growing up were we were really close, like little athletics every Saturday morning, and um, like I'd go watch play netball during the week, and she probably didn't want to, but she'd come watch me play footy, and um, would yeah, really like pretty sporty little kids, and yeah. would always be um, out in the backyard um, wrestling or whatever it is. Like she used to belt me up a bit, fair bit to be fair. Um, but yeah, basically, yeah, sort of as we got a bit older, she sort of like yeah, sort of sort of started hanging around with some wrong people and stuff, and. Um, I always tried to, uh, as a little brother I was like sort of tried to be the enforcer like, I was like real mm. footy enough like really just like wanted to be healthy and like train hard and like do everything right so I was sort of like we sort of complete opposites in a way and yeah then I sort of got a bit older and we sort of like um, sort of disconnected a bit and um, yeah then sort of like we as a family we sort of knew like something was a bit off and uh, it's like things weren't quite right and she had tough couple of years previous to that with um some brain surgery and um going through that and then recovering and then so she'd been through a fair bit like then sort of lost sport like with her mm-hmm. brain surgery couldn't play sport and um sort of lost i probably lost that connection with people like like her like through community and sporting clubs and like you do and then yeah sort of just she wasn't home as much as she used to be and sort of things were like mum and dad were getting a bit worried and stuff but you sort of think yeah like, it doesn't happen to like us like it is what it is like hear stories about it and and then yeah just like, couple, like I think the day before Christmas I mean two days before Christmas um, like she just went missing and no one, no one heard anything like like I was messaging on Facebook mum and dad like trying to call her like trying to call her friends and then yeah so basically like that was a, like, probably the, the worst Christmas I've had <laughs> oh, it wasn't really mm. um, it wasn't really Christmas that year um, and then yeah as it got on sort of still months had gone past and I hadn't seen her like you sort of like I said with Dax Marsh being a small town you'd hear all these whispers and you'd sort of just ignore them and think like nah that's that's not her like that's not that's not like you sort of nearly a bit of shame in a way like mm. and then yeah I remember just mum and dad like sitting me down one night and sort of telling me like what what has happened and like I was like pretty I was yeah 14 or 15 at the time so I was pretty shell shocked like just didn't really know too much about it as well and like how bad of an addiction it was like um so yeah, it's, it's probably one of the toughest things I've been told as a little brother and stuff, and um, 
yeah, ever since then, I probably wasn't quite the same for a couple of years. I just, yeah, sort of shame to go to the footy club. Like everyone, everyone knew that, yeah, you sort of, your sister's become addicted to ice and sort of hadn't seen her in a year. And, um, like everyone would always ask you, like, how's your sister going? Like, have you heard anything? And like, in the end, it just got so draining. I was just like, I don't really want to go down to the footy club. Like, I don't, like, I love footy. Like, I just wanted mm. to go there for that two hours, not the, the hour or two before, like, after or before it, because it just become, and even school, like, I was, like some days I'd spell mum, I'm not going to school, I just don't want to go to school. Like it's just like everyone at school would always ask you about it and like it's just like become like no one really asked how I was or anything. Like mm. and it was just like everything was just about yeah, w- what's going on, like and it's just become like really, really like become a lot for me and um lucky I had mum and dad, like they were they were huge and but even for them, like, I felt like I just wanted to take a back seat and like they were they were already going through enough um in their relationship and with their daughter and stuff, so um, yeah, basically for a couple of years, I just sort of like, I just wanted to like, I just took the back seat and just said like, just like go sort that out and um, like, I, I don't want to be like a distraction. So like, well, if you need me, I'll be here sort of thing. And um, yeah, it, it probably bonded me, like me and my parents like way stronger than we were. So um, yeah, but yeah, things are pretty good. Like probably the last, basically till I got into the AFL system, like, I remember even playing Vic Metro like some games like stuff was going on back home and just, like footy wasn't the most important thing in my life at the mm-hmm. time like just like worried about like my parents and how they were going and like if my sister was like healthy and like even alive at stages I was like we hadn't heard of her like um, and then got to an AFL club and like you, like like AFL clubs are these days like got such good like networks and good people around footy clubs and I think it's come a long way um from probably like back when you were playing like just how good people are at footy clubs these days and coaches and how much more easy is to talk about things so um yeah I moved away and um she was still going through a bit when I moved away so um yeah it was a bit, bit of a struggle early days and like you just I, I felt like I wanted to be there for my parents like and wanted to be back home and um be helping out where I could and stuff so um but yeah talking to just talking to some some people and um yeah, getting more knowledge about it and then, um, yeah, just opening up to people really. Like even mm. we had you in the club and um, like this is where we're tracking with this conversation. So I was like, I'd been wanting to get it off my chest. So I'd spoken to Kenny, like I'd sort of spoken to Kenny um, about it for a while and he sort of knew previous to the draft. And then Hugh sort of was doing this thing, the, the Triple H, like hero, heartbreak or help sort of thing. And um, yeah, I'd been thinking about it for ages, like, but just needed an opportunity like to, to t- talk to people so um yeah well up in Queensland at the time and like like yeah he basically come to the club before we went out there and said like I need 12 people for the first night like send me a text sort of thing and I'm like, like this is a perfect opportunity like I nearly wanted to be tomorrow like, I wanted to get out there and speak if it was tomorrow because mm. I just wanted to get off my chest and and so yeah basically I sent him a text basically as I got home from the club said like mate like yeah like chuck me on the first 12 I just want to get it sort of I want to get it over and done with like if you're lucky I wait any longer I'll go insane um so yeah but yeah basically growing up like just it's sort of when I look back now like it made me like who I am like it's just like like footy and footy like the two hours at footy and like same like just helped me so much like just like I'd go to the footy club and like like I said, other than the, the talk before and after, like we're around the club and stuff, like them two hours at footy training with my mates and stuff, and like I was just they're so unbelievable. And then even at Western Jets and stuff, like it was, it was sort of refreshing going to Western Jets and Vic Metro, like sort of a fresh face, and no one really knew like what would ha- what had happened. So like you could just feel like you just go there with no no stress and like mm. you just play footy and do what you want to do. So um, yeah, footy like it's it, like like it is for a lot of people. It's just such a great escape from like just what's actually happening in your life. 
Mate, it's unbelievable. I don't think I can even add to that. Like, you've just... Yeah, that's... Like, the way... At a young age, I can't imagine facing adversity, going through a family that's going, you know, through something like that. But then to just to already identify now that it's made you who you are. And I think that's, like, the coolest thing sometimes with adversity. Like, you wouldn't... Like, you would take that back and you wouldn't want that experience to happen. Yeah. But now... It's almost made you who you are. It's given you perspective. Um, you're closer with your family than, you, than you'd ever be. And your sister's, you know, on the mend and going really well. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Like, yeah, like you said, like, you never want to happen to anyone. Like I said, like, you don't really think it's ever going to happen to you. Like, and even in Max Marsh today, like, just in, like, Dali and stuff, like, it's, it's a pretty, pretty, like, sickening and big issue in our town. Like, like it is in a lot of small country towns sort of things. So, um, like, people you, you grow up with, like, you, you see them go down, like, follow the same path and, like, um, you see other people that you've known your whole life who are like older and stuff doing doing the same thing as well. So um, yeah, it's 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 pretty upsetting and sad like seeing people like you've seen the good side of them and then seeing them, like around town and stuff like. But yeah, like you said, like it just holds you in perspective and like just knowing that like like it's, I'm pretty proud of my sister today. To be fair, like like back then I was pretty ashamed and like just like when people would ask me, I'm like, oh, don't ask me. I don't know, like yeah. whatever, like. I don't really care about it anyway like acting like it didn't really mean that much to me but then I would go home at night and just like make my blood boil but now like just knowing how hard it is to like overcome addictions and like especially ice like it's it's probably one of the worst addictions in the world um, and like she's on the mend and like she's got a new boyfriend she's pretty happy with life and she, she's working and stuff and um, yeah she seems like she's in a pretty good place like and it's good to see her um, back to some pretty normalised life so um yeah, when you look back now, I'm just like, yeah, pretty pretty proud as a brother and um, like that, yeah, she's doing well. It's awesome, mate. That's super, super incredible and massive, um, yeah, massively would be hugely proud of your sister and what she's been through and especially your mum and dad and yourself. It's it's honestly incredible. Um, I think from someone that, yeah, probably hasn't, um, you know, I haven't had to uh, deal with, with adversity like that before to hear that story and, and what you've been able to get out with it. It's just it doesn't surprise me how you how you are like you are. What would you say to someone that's been through this, like other families like this that are in your situation now, like something that could help them or someone that's maybe going through this, they've got a friend or family member that could, they might be going down this path. Like, is there anything, advice that you'd give? Yeah. Probably just like, like probably just like talk to your mates about it and stuff. Like, that's probably one thing like, I probably didn't want to talk about to too many people. Like, but my three or four best mates probably took me like a year to actually just have a chat with them and mm. like just let them know like that like because like I like, just turned down some like like offers to catch up and like just because I wasn't like I just like, had some more serious stuff going on and probably wasn't myself and I like, just after I felt like I told them they were like yeah we knew like something wasn't wasn't right but and then like they just like so much support come like then like like they just put their arms out like and like, that's what best mates do like yeah so probably just like yeah one thing just like to, like don't be afraid to tell people like the that are close to you like like because like, they probably like they already know like because like, they know you so well like they already know something's not right so it's probably just easy to have a chat to them and um, probably just yeah talk to your family members and like yeah you gotta like no one else is like it's a pretty hard thing to get help for like it's pretty like one it's pretty expensive like if you don't really have much money like it's hard to get into like rehab centres mm. and um, find help so and there isn't a lot of government support out there for it either so um, you really just got to like 
stick to what you know, like around you, like your family members and um, your mates. Um, and then, yeah, try and find help and talk to people that can help you and point you in the right direction. And um, we we're lucky enough to have a really lovely lady in Baxmarsh who helped us out and, um, yeah, basically become like best friends with my sister and just got her into rehab and um, helped our family out. Like she wasn't even my sister's mentor in the end. Like, like I still catch up with her for brekkie, brekkie when I'm home and just mm. talk to her about stuff and, um, yeah, she talks to my parents a bit still. Like, she's just like, she's been awesome support. So, um, yeah, find someone in the area who knows what they're doing and, um, yeah, just reach out really.